Hello again, Ash Reed here from Buffer. Welcome back to Breaking Brand and the final episode of this series. If you've been following the pattern brand story featured in the past four episodes, you'll know that we've been focusing on the bold strategy behind their pivot from a hugely successful brand agency to a multi-brand direct-to-consumer business. We've drawn on their experience to help you gain insight into what it takes to build a brand and hear about what they've learned along their journey of the inevitable ups and downs. It was hard. I don't know. There's no two ways about it. But the process of going all in on launching a new venture has also been rewarding. It's super satisfying. It's definitely a very special experience. After launching Pattern in August, the launch of Equal Parts came shortly after in September. When we left you last episode, we'd learned about the Equal Parts brand, its product offering, and some of the challenges ahead. And now, we look at how the team took Equal Parts to market and what they learned from this launch. Plus, to round up this series, we'll look at what's next for Pattern and the D2C industry as a whole. When Pattern Brands launched, they announced Equal Parts on the same day to help build some excitement about the brand. And that strategy paid off. Here's Nick speaking just after the Pattern launch. We've seen that we've already hit the goals we had for Equal Parts in terms of early signups. We were expecting that to happen to over, over a month and it happened in a matter of days. We were after initially 5,000 signups. And so we hit that goal very, very quickly and we're still continuing to see that number tick up. So before launch, Equal Parts had an audience of over 5,000 potential customers. And the team created a referral scheme to get these potential early adopters sharing news about the brand. Yeah, referral is something that we saw as really critical to help build community and build engagement with early adopters. That's Tyler Scrow again, the GM of Equal Parts. You might remember him from the last episode. We looked to some of you know the other brands that we've worked with, Harry's being one of them that we worked with really early days. They were kind of the you know the leader in, in launching really successful referral campaigns. And we've tried to model it off of that. We've seen people sharing it on Twitter with everyone in their network that's necessarily not their sister, brother, boyfriend, girlfriend, et cetera. And so it's really just been a great way to get people interested in the bigger narrative that we're talking about, have them engage with content and build an engaged user base ahead of launch. The pattern and equal parts branding and messaging clearly connected with consumers. And gathering feedback and learning from consumers was a key goal as the team revved up to launch equal parts to the public. Our two big goals with launch were to build awareness around the brand. And the second one was to learn a lot. You know, what about what we were doing was resonating with what types of people and what types of situations. I think that good businesses listen to their consumers and then start iterating and adjusting how we tell our story how we think about merchandising products, how we make it clear what parts of the business are important and which parts aren't. With just a few weeks between announcing equal parts and launching the brand, the time went by fast and launch day had arrived. Here's Nick talking us through the day from his perspective. I remember waking up at 7am and by 7.30, Tyler had sent me and Emmett a screenshot of our backend platform showing our first order for a knife. And that felt really good just walking into the office that, you know, you've moved from zero to one of a sale. With a sale in the bag, the launch was off to a good start. And once Nick arrived in the office, the team gathered to work through the day's important to-dos. Both for the pattern equal parts launch, we had a war room. So everyone who's involved with an agenda of how we start telling different groups of people who've been part of this and our wider network about the launch. Soon after, 
the press coverage started rolling in. You know, it's, it's always a bit nerve-wracking. You talk to reporters, you talk to a lot of people, but you have no control over what they're going to perceive. And we were super excited to see the press come in during the morning. The pre-launch press interviews paid off. Curved writer Liz Stinton wrote, quote, Equal Parts is looking to bridge the gap between our insatiable desire for efficiency and the joys of slowing down and cooking a meal. And Domino's Ellie Levitt wrote, quote, The brand supplies the tools, both literal and figurative, to convince you to actually use your new frying pan and crack open that cookbook you got as a housewarming gift. The Equal Parts launch was also covered by Adweek, Gear Patrol, Forbes and more. And then, as the day went on, Nick allowed time for reflection and looking forward. Moving into the afternoon, it's one, celebrating with the team and, you know, reflecting on the moment we're having together, but also two, starting to think about what does day two look like? And, you know, going to bed at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock that night, my mind was less on how many sales did we have today and more about what do the next 300 days look like for this brand? It was also hard to process everything that had happened in just 24 hours. I think the whole thing feels a bit overwhelming. You just have so many inputs that are coming at you. And I think you expect feel like exact moments of elation, but you more are like absorbing the situation around you. Nick, Emmett and the Patton team have been through many launches over the years at Gin Lane, helping brands like Harry's, Recess and Smile Direct Club go to market. But this one felt unique. I think one of the fundamental differences in the excitement and in running a D2C business versus an agency is the launch is the start rather than the end. And it just reframes how you think about everything towards the business that you're building. Emmett also took the launch as an opportunity to step into the shoes of a customer. I went through the process and bought it. And when it arrived at my apartment for a second, I didn't remember it was for me. I just was like, oh my God, that looks so cool. And then when, you know, I remembered it was for me and I brought it into my apartment and, you know, my girlfriend and I, like, unboxed it. It was a different, I'm trying to describe, it was a different part of the brain that turned on. I didn't feel like it was my company. I felt like a customer. Experiencing equal parts from a customer's perspective enabled Emmett to enjoy the moment and reflect on what he and the patent team had been able to create. I just went into this, like, flow state period of forgetting all about all the design decisions and stuff we had made. And once I came out of that an hour later and was like, oh my God, we, we made this, you know, after building websites and intangible, uh, non-physical items for so long, it was really, really special to make these physical items and, you know, and have them work and not only work, but work really well. You're so head down building something that you don't appreciate it. You're just always looking for what's wrong or what you can fix. But if you actually go through that end result, it's, it's super satisfying. It's definitely a very special experience. With launch day over, the question now turns to how the team will turn launch hype and excitement into long-term growth. The team is experimenting with a range of tactics to help them understand what resonates most with consumers. We had these incredible open kitchens, which maybe I can let Emmett talk about a little bit more which were focused around helping people get the feeling we were looking for from equal parts in person. And here's Emmett to explain the reasoning behind the open kitchen concept. People love coming together over food, and I think that's something that, you know, you can lose a little bit when you're, you're super digitally focused, you know, and we wanted to make sure we kept the, the IRL and, and the personal, you know, humanity kind of community component to it, which is something that I think is... A, 
a strength we have. The team arranged a series of private dinners close to their Chinatown, New York base and opened up a pop-up kitchen one weekend to enable people to come in and experience equal parts products firsthand, as well as boost their confidence in the kitchen. It's just like a very communal way of using your hands, you're meeting people next to you, you're talking, and we had you know, some awesome partners from House and Recess and some of the you know, drinks and you know, brands that are friendly with us. And so it just creates this kind of like warm, cozy experience that breaks barriers down, gets people talking over food. Now, as a whole, the D2C industry is maturing, and despite the hype and well-known success stories, it's a rocky road to travel along. Take this Forrester research expert, for instance. From the outside, this new wave of digitally native, direct-to-consumer strategies seem like a golden ticket. Big, established brands have struggled to be relevant with empowered consumers, while these small DTC companies have thrived in categories from mattresses to personal care suddenly. But DTC brands have a rocky road too. Financial sustainability is difficult, differentiation is getting harder, and costs for acquisition are going up for all. You might remember Richie Siegel from our last episode. Richie shared great insight into the future of the direct-to-consumer industry with us. I think a lot of the, call it, quote-unquote, conventional wisdom, which was frankly unconventional wisdom that, you know, underpinned the space around, we're going to grow these brands online only, we're going to raise tons of money and so forth, I would say has largely been disproven. There are probably less than a handful of examples of companies that, you know, adhere to that formula and actually found success. And so I think where it is going forward, and especially with some sort of macroeconomic shift, you know, coming soon, is a lot of these brands are going to be a lot more capital efficient. Some might not raise any money or will raise a fraction of what, you know, the past kind of few cohorts of brands did. They will spend infinitely less money on Facebook, which, you know, was the main channel for many of these brands, you know, that got them to where they were. And I think they'll have this belief that there is no formula for the space. And what that all means for Richie is that he's seeing more of a return to small businesses. And some of those will have, again, institutional financing behind them. But this idea of these direct consumer unicorns, I think and hope has largely been disproven or become a much less interesting goal for a lot of founders. And it's this small business approach that makes my mind turn to Patton's vision and ambition. Remember in episode two where Camille says, I think it's similar again to the, the mom and pop store. I think there was a time when you could go to the store and get advice and know who you're buying from. I wondered what Richie thought, especially about the pattern model, an umbrella company launching multiple brands from one source. So this idea has been floating around, I mean, arguably for decades, given you look at the LVMHs and the carrings and so forth. But I think in the you know, younger digitally native direct-to-consumer brand space has been floating around for, I would say, at least a handful of years, if not longer. The premise is great, right? The theory makes sense. Brands have core competencies. A lot of them have similar overlap and, and require similar infrastructure. Why do we need to rebuild it over and over again if we can kind of centralize it and find efficiencies from there, especially from a capital allocation perspective, from a marketing budget perspective, maybe from real estate perspective? That all makes sense. There are a few challenges to it, though. First, operationally, it's very complex to run a number of different companies under one roof. And if you actually look at a lot of these holding companies, the traditional ones, the LVMHs of the world and so forth, they're actually very siloed. And I would argue that can be a bad thing, but there also is a positive to that where like, 
Dior is not really sharing much with Louis Vuitton, which is not really sharing much with, you know, J.W. Anderson and Lueve and so forth. They're very separated. And, and again, there's a good and a bad to that, but the reality is that they're separated and they don't really share a common marketing team or, or so forth. You know, you could have a core marketing team that works on a bunch of different brands, but at a certain point, they do need to focus their efforts at a certain point because different audiences require different tactics and different brands have different audiences and so forth. The other challenge as well, and this is a little bit of a good problem, but it is still a problem, is that generally when a holding company launches a brand or two or three, one of them is going to work better than the rest. And often it's pretty rare, I would say, to have two or three that work the same amount. Generally, one is going to be, you know, the hero brand in a sense. And at a certain point, you'll have these other brands that are taking a lot of focus and, and often a lot of capital and you're going to be forced with the decision to say hey do we double down on the thing that's working when nick emmett and i sat down for our final interview i asked nick how Patton was approaching this challenge is there pressure on equal parts to grow and to grow quickly or with the Patton model is it kind of a brand that can stay purposely small and serve a smaller niche while you build other brands the outcome of that is still to be seen the patent model, I think, is designed to be able to be brands to be right-sized for the scale they get to. And, you know, because we're part of a family of brands, we can, you know, teach each child, each brand, how is best for them versus uh, some of the external market pressures that individual direct-to-consumer brands might feel. Look, we want to grow equal parts to be something really significant, but we also could keep it smaller if that is how the market and how the target consumers are looking for that brand. And, you know, we have a ton of confidence in where Equal Parts is going, but we can also think about our portfolio as the way we build the business. The Patton team is also keen to forge their own path and achieve great things without sacrificing their culture and working themselves towards burnout. I think an interesting challenge for Pattern is also how do you build a modern brand in a way that can be, you know, high growth and reach scale and do all the cool startup stuff, but not have to burn people out to do it, right? I think that's part of kind of the playbook that has been almost accepted for, you know, the past generation is hyper growth means you got to work at the office around the clock. You know, the boss has got to be the first ones in, the last ones out. And if anyone leaves before them, it's, you know, well, woe is them. And I don't think that we believe that, right? And so how can we build an effective company that can be successful, can do all the things that we think we can do and do it in a way that still allows us to have quality time at work and out of work. Emmett says that it's a long play for them. With Patton, he says they're trying to build a community, trying to create a movement. There is a better way. There's a better way to balance work and life. Looking ahead to the future, I asked both Nick and Emmett what they thought Q1 would look like for them and what would be at the forefront of their minds for the next six months. Yeah, I think two things and they're really simple. One is continue to espouse and stand for our core mission, which is helping people create quality time in their lives um, and raise awareness. Second thing is give people products that they love and they love continuing to use. And if we can do those things, then we'll have a mission that people want to buy in with actions that they're able to take through the products we're selling them. And so for us, you know, getting our team rallied behind those two goals is by far the most important thing to us as a company. They're also working on the next brand launch. We have our second brand launching early next year. So we're deep in building that. And when it comes to developing its next brands, Patton is taking an audience first approach. 
now we have this wonderful world of a community around us that we want to start building a conversation rather than just putting out new products and brands based upon our internal strategy. So do you think it would be fair to say like with pattern equal parts in the next brand, you're kind of almost going audience first and building a base of consumers that believe what you believe and then kind of expanding from there into what makes sense? Yeah, I think our first goal is to build an audience and to build a message that is almost like a grassroots movement. And then from there, we need to start listening to that community around us as we grow the business. We've got a long list of 30 to 40 opportunities, which we think are exciting, where we've done strategic explorations of them and consumer interviews, but we haven't clicked go on any of them yet. And I think as well, thinking ahead or looking at the industry as a whole, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you think the world of commerce is heading in the next five years or so. Yeah, I think we're going to continue to see an evolution of brands. And you're going to continue to see a development of more and more brands coming to market. I think that how they come to market and in what form is going to continue to evolve. I get really excited through partners like Neighborhood Goods, who are breaking down the barriers for new brands to be touched and felt by new consumers. I'll just jump in here. For those of you who don't know them, Neighborhood Goods is a brand that's been credited as making an old idea modern. Essentially, they're opening up physical stores to host digitally native brands. Yeah, well, a new kind of brick and mortar store just opened, selling things we can usually only find online. I think it's fair to say that Texans love shopping and they encourage innovation. Meet the store and the man. So I'm half American. Who's doing both. Uh, my mom is from Galveston, Texas. Matt Alexander grew up so outside London, but came back for college and for business. For me, a lot of it is focusing on a general feeling and creating something very memorable. He's a co-founder of Neighborhood Goods in Plano's Legacy West, which may be a glimpse into the future of retail. The modern space features pop-ups for brands you know and new ones that started online, but now... Neighborhood Goods CEO Matt Alexander has been quoted as saying, the cost of acquiring customers online is going up and lifetime value is going down. Stores deployed properly can be an efficient way to find growth. I finished up my interviews with Nick and Emmett, wondering what their biggest learning has been on this experience of building and launching their first direct-to-consumer brand. What's the one key takeaway they have? I think for myself, I love like, meta or like double entendre kind of narratives. And I think what we've been saying for for Pattern about your daily life, about, okay, there's so much information out there, but like, you know, signal versus noise, what are your inner signals? Set up these barriers and focus on what's important for you and let the other stuff just kind of go to the side like a river. I think the same applies for what I found for, you know, for operating a business in market, um, you know, specifically equal parts, which is commerce driven, which at this point pattern is more around creating this awareness and making a community and, and building a movement. For launch, there was a deluge of data and information. So modern analytics and software for understanding what's going on, it was so much. And we had an awesome launch and there was a ton of stuff to parse through. And I think it took us a few, a few weeks to understand what were false positives, what are cause and what are correlations. And personally, I think for myself, and I think a lot of the team, we had to get to a point of saying, what are the key signals we're looking for? And what do we need to focus on and not being distracted by the amount of information that you can go down rabbit holes on. So I think for me, it comes back to the central narrative of focusing on what's important to you and letting the other stuff just go away. 
Yeah, I think just going on a different tack from Emmett, one thing that is evident to me is that long term, what makes or breaks this business is the team we have around us and how we work together. I know that sounds like a very simple thing, but building anything new, you're going to go through ups and downs, high moments, very low moments. And I think the way you manage through them is A, creating incredible culture, B, hiring people who can do things you can't, and C, working out the best long-term ways to work together in the, in the most effective ways. We sat down as a leadership team last week and had a conversation about what do we want to look like as a group of people for the next year as we're starting to plan towards 2020 and I'll tell you most of the conversation wasn't around the performance of pattern or the performance equal parts it was about how do we work best together and my big takeaway for next year is continuing to focus on culture continuing to focus how we communicate continuing to focus on how voices are heard at all levels in the organization because the way we succeed is every person in the organization feeling like they're empowered to be an entrepreneur themselves. And that will keep us innovating and learning as we go forward as a company. I think if we focus on those two things, then we'll figure out anything that hits us over the next 12, 24 months or beyond. Well, that's it for this first series of Breaking Brand. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Pattern Brand story. If you've enjoyed the series, we'd love a review wherever you get your podcasts. A few thank yous for the teams behind this series. Thank you to the Pattern team who made themselves available for multiple interviews. Thank you to Deris for their support coordinating interviews and recording opportunities. Thanks to Sandra, Jake and Emily from Message Heard for their production support and to Max Miller for recording on the ground in New York. And thank you for listening. Keep following this feed for updates on what's to come next from Buffer. I've been your host, Ash Reed. Until next time. <laughs>